I'm CJ Helbard, and welcome to the Tempest Bay podcast, a diary about creating things in an increasingly mad world. Tempest Bay is a small town on the wild coast of New Zealand. It has charming cottages on the beach, quirky townsfolk, quaint old traditions that have survived the onslaught of technology. It also has a dark history going back to the days when whaling ships ploughed the great ocean. There are secrets buried deep in our basements, rituals we don't ever talk about, and on pitch black nights when the mist rolls in off the sea, we each feel something scratching at the walls of our mind. Tempest Bay is a fictional place where love meets Lovecraft, a place to make stories about being human in this mad, mad world. As we build Tempest Bay at projecttempest.net, this podcast is where we have conversations as creators about what's on our mind. Thank you for being part of this journey with us. Welcome to the Tempest Bay podcast. I'm CJ. This week we've got Ed McRae, um, legendary New Zealand writer, game designer, narrative designer, novelist. There's not a lot you haven't done, mate. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I haven't gone skydiving while writing. <laughs> next up, next, next up, up on the Tempest Bay podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it today. I think we're both quite interested in some stuff about New Zealand storytelling, um, especially in the horror genre, um, swapping stories as writers do about our sort of creative journeys. I'm really looking forward to a good conversation. Thank you so much for coming with us. Oh, no, so I'm here. Like, pleasure to be here. Ta, mate. And before we get on to the large, awesome, winding discussion, I thought we might start off with just um, a little bit of things we've been enjoying over the past while and then things that maybe kicked us off in our writing career by inspiring us. So what I've done is I've, I've just basically come up with something that I've run into in the past couple of weeks, some kind of narrative experience that I really enjoyed. And then I was thinking about something that was quite formative to me in my younger years. And I think you've done the same. So if we basically swap ideas around this, what's, what's something you've been playing recently? Um, well, actually, I haven't been playing a huge yeah. amount. It's um, my latest kind of, I guess, uh, the story that really grabbed me just recently was um, The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, which I watched on um, Netflix, it must have been. Yes. And um, really, like, one of the best, like, scary ghost-type horror TV series that I've seen and or, you know, beats actually most of the movies I've seen lately, too, in, in that kind of um, genre. Uh, I thought they just did a fin- that's just really interesting job of it. Nice. I watched it with my partner when it came out, and the same thing. I think we were just riveted. Mm, yeah, it's um, what did I put it down to? Like, it does creepy without too many jump scares, which I I love in horror. Like, I will, I, I just I generally don't like jump scares at all. I think that's kind of like a, a, a cheap horror trick that gets overused, and and plus I don't go to horror to actually feel genuinely sort of like startled or anything like that. I go to horror to experience that really nice creeping dread of of seeing like where things are going and how horribly it's all going to turn out for the characters and and i thought yeah the haunting of hell house does that that beautifully and it also plays with some really interesting things around time um you know flashing back in time or time different times existing 
in one location and different sort of characters from different times existing in one location too. Uh, so it really kind of throws up some interesting questions about what are ghosts and how do they have, what, what is their relationship with time and, and um, I think it'd like, be interesting to get into even the quantum physics of how they actually thought about putting all that together. But not that I'm not that I know anything about quantum physics. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. To me, at least, part of the the horror in the whole thing was the gap between the people that that family were when they move into that house, and then where they end up in the present day, as it were. Mm. Just um, there's there's that 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 knot of like what happens to these people, and it, and it plays out through the series so beautifully. It does. It's all about, like, it seems to be about psychological trauma, like um, how trauma from the past informs then how you behave, think, are in, in the future. And, yeah, I think, yeah, the, the, haunting, the haunting of Horse Hill, <laughs> <laughs> the haunting of Hill House, yeah, does that, um, does that beautifully. Nice. I believe you spent some time around TV productions as well. Um were you impressed by the episode that um, has a particular aspect of TV production to it that is very impressive? I think oh, you know the one we're talking about. We do. Uh, can we say it without spoilers? We probably can because it's just it's yeah. a cinematic yeah. technique. We just say, won't say what happens. But um, yeah, that one episode where it, it does, I think we talked about this. It's not one single take, but it's a lot of really long takes with the camera moving around the characters and most of it's in one location if not all of it in one location yeah. i think it reminded me there was um there was a russian film director who kind of spearheaded that style or was it even oh no was it lars von von Trey or something like that but basically shot a whole film in one shot yeah so it reminded me of that and it was it's it was really great for the building of the tension especially the tension between the different characters and you felt like you were kind of like this uncomfortable extra person standing and walking around and pacing the room with them it was yeah it was cool really well done. yeah nice i i always enjoyed those type of things especially where it's not particularly flashy they're not putting it front and center that it's sort of all one shot but you realize after about 40 minutes that you've been essentially trapped in this place with these people and you're feeling the claustrophobia you're feeling the terror it's, a, it's such a wonderful technique when it's done well and, and i i can only imagine the logistics that they had to go through there's a short mini doc i think on netflix about how they made that episode mm. oh, and even I, where they they joined up some of the sets physically so that they could basically run between different bits so there's a lot of theater craft going on which i think is awesome Mm, which is that is interesting because yeah when i worked in um, tv production because i did um four years of shortland street there's some horror for you <laughs> <laughs> so for international listeners uh shortland street is our our new zealand uh, soap opera it's a hospital drama and um it's been going since 1992 i think non-stop pretty much they had to take a wee break during COVID. I think that's about it. And um, so there, like, um, the impression they give is like a full, like they've got a full hospital that all the characters move around and do their things in. But um, when you actually see the studios, um, every room is kit set 
and they just like roll it out or assemble it for shooting that particular scene at that time. The scenes aren't shot sequentially or anything like that. So it's this constant kind of um, jigsaw puzzle being pieced together. It's really interesting, but it they somehow make it seem like the whole thing just flows through. Yeah, good fun. I'm. It's an excellent recommendation to people, and I'm apparently there's a sequel to The Haunting of Hill House coming, mm, which, which, which looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, based on a, a it's not a it's completely different characters. Apparently, it's yeah. based on another novel because the uh, The Haunting of Hill House was based on a 1950s novel, right? I think, um, written by a, a female horror writer whose name escapes me. Oh, Shirley Jackson. Yes. 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 Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So I think um, this next one is based on another, another story, another cool. haunted house, basically type story. Yeah. It it'd get a bit tangled if the exact same family kept on shifting houses into a new haunted house every series. Oh, those poor people! It's just like <laughs> forever. And uh, I think that's what I also enjoyed about it was that it's um, it wrapped up nicely within. It must have been 10 episodes so yeah. you you got the full arc you got the full story you got the resolution and you got by the end you really needed the um that release of tension and and all of that at the end because it just yeah you got so wound up by like episode nine <laughs> <laughs> i do think if you obviously one way of looking at tv series is that each season is almost like a novel and i think yeah. novels do have to end even if you're going to write another novel, have another season afterwards, it is nice to have some closure at the end of every season. So it's not just, speaking of soap operas, it's not just an ongoing thing where every season flows into the next. You want to say, okay, um, this arc is done. Let's put it to bed. Okay, take a breath and the story will come back at some point. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a real difference between like serial fiction and novels because, yeah, indeed, at least... Well, I mean, I guess you can play around with it a bit. You can have a cliffhanger at the end of your novel, but then you better be doing a fast release model where you're releasing the next model uh, novel really quick. Otherwise, you know, you don't want to be waiting a whole year after the last book ended on a cliffhanger. That's just not fair. <laughs> so you were <laughs> no. so CJ, you had a, a a game in mind that yeah you've been playing recently. Yeah, we've been playing Spiritfarer, which is a wonderful title. Um, we've absolutely loved it. So the official description is from Thunder Lotus Games. It's a cozy management game about dying. You play Stella, who is the fairy master to the deceased. You build a boat to explore the world. Then you befriend and care for spirits before finally releasing them into the afterlife. You farm, mine, fish, harvest, cook, and craft your way across mystical seas. Cool. And and that's a nice description, and, and it does sort of um, encapsulate the mechanics of the game. But I don't really care about the mechanics of Spiritfarer. It's a very simple thing that I loved about it, which is the feel and the emotion and the emotional palette of it is wonderful. Mm. It's this lovely, um, almost Richard Scarry-style boat, which is very colorful and lively, that you're sailing these invisible seas on. And you're building it up as all of these talking animals come onto your boat, and they've all recently died. And you're really just journeying around this big ocean while everyone works out their problems and eventually gets ready to go on to the next stage of the afterlife. 
and it's incredibly relaxing. It's incredibly kind, and each animal is quite quirky. They have wonderful little personalities. So even describing it as a management sim, I mean, yes, those are the mechanics that are going on, but I cared much more about this is a game that felt to me like it probably couldn't have existed 10 years ago. It's part of what I think of in my head as the kind of Annapurna type revolution in the indie game space where real money has been put behind games that just want to expand the emotional palette of what you can do in a video game in, in lovely human quirky ways. So we just started playing. My partner loved it immediately. Um, we don't really care about our points or how far through the game we are. We're just basically floating around on the ship and having a nice time and really enjoying hanging out with our pet cat and talking with all these spirits. It's a, it's a lovely, lovely piece. We, we really enjoyed it. I, I, I could not recommend it more to anyone looking for something a little different. Excellent. So just because um, I'm always looking for good games I can play with a controller. Is it, uh, is it a controller-based one? So it's one you can't get back on the couch. Yeah, and, and yeah, very. Do it. Yeah, because um, my, my partner also noticed it um, when we were having a look through Steam one day, and, and um, it does look really cool. But So um, when you say the mechanics kind of don't take um, front and centre in it, um, what are the relationship between the mechanics and, and how you're interacting with the character? Like, are they, are they basically there to kind of... You know how it's like when you're having difficult conversations with people, it's easier to have something to do, like do the dishes, make a cup of tea, than it is to just sit there and just talk to them about it. Is it a bit like that? Very much. So so this is not something like NeoCab, which is a game entirely built around difficult conversations and it can get a little claustrophobic. You're you've you've got this big empty space. Um your, your ship early on is, is almost like a barge. It's this open flat space. And these animals come onto your ship and you have to provide them with some kind of quarters, some kind of place to stay. And so one person might ask you, oh, could you make me just a little hut on your barge? And then they'll say, oh, could I please have a kitchen? Or could I please have somewhere to grow food? And so the management side of it is you're busily really just earning the money and actually building things on your boat to house these people that are your passengers. Mm. And there's there's a well-worked out set of mechanics around that. But as you say, almost incidentally, every once in a while, this little thing will pop up and there'll be a little conversation that comes through. And it's always about them moving a little further on their journey to figuring out what their life was about and what's coming next. So it's, it's not a super intense, let's talk about death in the afterlife game. It's a let's sail around, build some stuff, use some mechanics it used to, and along the way, there'll just be some very human, beautiful moments. So very much what you're talking about. Lovely. And so, is is the dialogue interactive, or is it um, is the dialogue does it more respond to what you actually do as far as building things on your on your barge? It's incredibly simple. It's it's not a dialogue tree game particularly. Um, what you're really doing in theory, the, the mechanic side of it is that you're, that you're trying to manage their emotional state. So they first come onto your boat and they've just died and they're often quite miserable. So you cheer them up with a hug and you've got a little pet cat that can hug people, which is beautiful. And in the, and every morning they might want some breakfast and they might really like toast. So if you make them some toast, they'll be especially happy. And then these conversations play out as there, there's not a lot of choice. It's it's not that type of game. Mm. But um, 
the the meter or the bar is really their emotional state, which helps them move through what they need to move through to be ready to go on to the next phase of the afterlife. So very simple. It's it's not as minimalist as something like Kingdom Two Crowns, which uses um, left, right, and one button, but it's not oh, yeah. far off. The mechanics are very simple. Yeah. Ah, uh, uh, so Kingdom Two. I haven't heard of that one, but I know of um, uh, what's it called? It's a mobile game which also uses the left, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember. It'll it'll come back to me hopefully. <laughs> um, that also reminds me of another game which I would technically call a horror game. Um, at least the definitely the setting is horror and it does have some quite unnerving moments and that's oxen free yes yeah uh, yeah i've really enjoyed that game the whole atmosphere and the combination of you know it's kind of a, a i guess a 2d it's not even really a platformer it's more like a walking simulator but done 2d and then um the interactive conversations are really good um and feel really adaptive like the, you know you, you sort of feel the other characters attitudes changing to you based on what you say to them or how you respond and then um some really cool creepy puzzles involving time and kind of phantoms and things like that no, i agree that i i love that game and there's a really good game developers conference talk online about how they built the dialogue system because mm. exactly what you're saying it's it's really quite astonishingly responsive and they wanted to work on this idea of the characters kind of just chatter away among themselves and you can jump in at almost any point and it interrupts properly, which is really hard to do in dialogue systems. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it does. It makes the whole kind of the discourse feel really uh, organic. Yeah. 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 So no, I, I really, I've really enjoyed that. And, and just, yeah, the whole premise of it's kind of a bunch of teenagers go to party on an Island and, you know, getting it there and of course encountering all sorts of nice. <laughs> scary scary <laughs> but it wasn't too scary you know it wasn't like it wasn't no. uh, friday the 13th no i agree and i think what one connection i would make between spirit fair and oxen free i think they both do a great job of there's a really distinct emotional palette that they both take both of these are different and they just kind of dwell on that they're very happy to live in a really particular emotional space and as you say a lot of the other stuff the mechanics the the plot of the game if you like they they all really just reinforce a really distinctive emotional experience which i guess is what all games try and do but in those games i think the game mechanics as it were are really almost in the background around just here's this feel like i think both of us know what oxen free feels like in a really distinct way and everything contributes to that spirit fair are very much the same games built around a feeling which i think is really smart yeah i think so too and um yeah because if you get that wrong like I'm, and now i'm thinking about um action games that then try to do simple things like tell a story by making you pick up a page and read it um and you know if you're if you, especially like AR, arpgs are tricky for this and i'm thinking of uh, grim dawn i play which is also very very post-apocalyptic horror themed and um you know you pick up these tomes that you then read but you've just finished like gunning down a whole bunch of zombies and running for your life and you know, it's tense. ARPGs are tense stuff. So the last thing that you want to do is then 
cozy up with a with a two page um, you know diary from someone. You're just not in a reading mood. So, yeah. so those those two emotions or those two mindsets really clash. Whereas yeah, games like Oxenfree, they there's a seamless transition between how you feel when you're listening to the conversation and interacting with the conversation, how you're mooching along the island at walking speed, how you're quietly solving a puzzle. It's all within, as you say, yeah, the, the emotional palette is very calm and kind of the more subtle emotions than run for your life or <laughs> kill this before it kills you. You know, <laughs> I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, obviously as, as someone who, who has done narratives, um, sorry, has done the narrative design for a lot of games now across a really interesting bunch of genres. If I were making big statements about the last sort of 10 years or so around games, I think one of the biggest things we've seen is moving beyond exactly what you're talking about, which is it used to be, I think, it was it's reasonable to say that a lot of games, you had your core gameplay loop, and then every once in a while you would take a break and you'd have your little bit of story in whatever form that was, cutscene or something to read or whatever, and then it's back to the gameplay loop. And there's not, not necessarily a lot of connection between those two things. Game has to have a story, so we have to have some book pages, and a game obviously has to have gameplay, so we have our core loop, but we don't really, the two don't really mix. And I think, again, making very big statements, but last 10 years or so, you've really started to see a lot of games get beyond that and start to actually go, we can create a story experience with gameplay or a gameplay experience with story without that stop-start thing you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, I think it was even just called the sandwich model. Yes. Exactly that. You know, you'd you'd have um, a bit of story sandwiched between two chunks of gameplay, and and that bit of story would often interrupt the gameplay. It would be a cutscene that you just suddenly, you know, you're going at it, you're gunning gunning people down or gunning monsters down, and then boom, let's let's watch a little bit of tally for a moment, and it, <laughs> and it, it, it just it, it jarred you out of the experience, really. But yeah, no, certainly. Games have gotten a lot more sophisticated about integrating story with mechanics, so that in so many cases now it is a truly seamless experience. And um, that's probably yeah, I would say over the last ten years, which in terms of an art form evolving, is actually super quick. Yes, yeah. Well, I, I always think you know, the first time I really ran into video games probably would have been sometime in the mid '80s, and if you had taken what I was playing on a Commodore 64 in 1986 and then just given me a peek into now, <laughs> I, I would literally have thought this is science fiction. What happened? This is beyond any evolution of games that I could have imagined. Oh, and I had an interesting sense of temporal dislocation. That's nice. Nice, Frank. <laughs> I can fancy uh, with the writer stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I went to, it was uh, game. Game Makers, I think it was called. It was an exhibition uh, that they did at Te Papa. Uh, the, for, again, for the international listeners, that's a museum in, in oh, sorry, Wellington, not Auckland, Wellington. And um, it's our national museum. And they, it was, it featured a whole bunch of games from around the world um, and covered a, like a full sort of range from the early like very early ones i think there was a an example of pong there even uh, like the physical you know rolling the dials and shifting your little bats and sending the blip across nice. the, across the screen 
um, through to more recent games. But I remember like I, I looked at Dungeon Keeper, which I played a lot of in perhaps 2002, it must have been, uh, when I was over in the UK for a bit. And I looked at it then, and this was maybe 10 years later, and I could barely decipher what, what I was looking at. Like, I just, I no longer understood it. I couldn't read it. I couldn't understand the icons. I didn't know what the heck was going on. And it was like, how did I ever know what this was? But, um, and it just showed how, I guess, my perceptions had progressed and now had settled into more of the AAA look, whereas going back to things that were a lot more abstract, pixelated, and so on, mm. I was like, whoa, I've, I've lost the ability to understand that. So it was kind of, kind of frightening actually <laughs> there's a there's that wonderful series of ads that plays in grand theft auto vice city which is these real piss takes of like 1980s video game ads and he's talking about well um i think it's this is you um you play as this red block and you have to go and kill the yellow square use your imagination type thing like yeah. very, very much so right yeah you're this blob over here you're these 16 pixels and you have to go after those 32 pixels over there and, yeah. and just, but it's actually a, a giant hyperdrive spaceship in the continuum. Mm -hmm. You know, like all, all the, all those wonderful bits of backstory fiction, but what you're looking at is an indecipherable blob of just visual mess by today's standards. But yeah. back then you're like, oh, oh, I'm right in the middle of this. I can feel it all. Well, and they, they did a good job of that too. They did. As you mentioned backstory, it's like, you have a look at, um, <laughs> like the artwork on the side of a space invaders machine and yeah. it is i think yeah it's like this this like really rich illustration of i think it's an alien coming in and trying to beam someone up and everyone's running and screaming and it's you know proper alien invaders type stuff and you think oh wow that's gonna be awesome and then you yeah you play this thing that is literally yeah, just a bunch of like indecipherable pixels kind of go do 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 across the screen but you do, you still have the picture of that illustration in your mind. So you understand that, oh yeah, if yeah, if that blob of pixels gets that little blob of pixels, that's an alien picking up a human and I yeah. must save that human. And I can almost imagine that human in the clutches of the alien screaming, help me, help me, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> so it did and a your, good job. And your brain is, is or was very happy to fill in those spaces with incredibly vivid experiences. Mm, yeah. I mean, that absolutely. must be almost almost everyone's experience of playing video games when they're younger it's so vivid and it's not necessarily connected to the the pixel count or the graphical quality at all and especially right. the further back you go the more evocative they have to be because you know in in some cases you're literally playing games that are just ascii art mm. but it's yeah. a giant dungeon full of terrifying monsters and a, and a castle and a princess and and your brain just has to kind of explode with this awesome co-creation mm, yeah which which i had a, an experience with uh i had that experience with a dark room which is a mobile game that uses cool. um just text and ascii art uh it's kind of a it's like a text town builder plus ascii exploration game all very sort of post-apocalyptic and it's really good it does a wonderful job at evoking exactly those feelings of of um imagining well evoking those sort of imaginative processes rather of of my town i can see it growing 
the way it describes the people and the huts and the town, I can sort of imagine how that's going down. And then my post-apocalyptic encounters, it does, you know, it does a really good job of offering so little and then sparking so much in my own, in my own head. Whereas I actually found like I tried to play uh, Dead Space. All right. Dead Space, the first one. And um, I couldn't do it. It was too intense. <laughs> it was just too too horrific and frightening because it was so immersive. Even though the you know the graphics on that game, the first one, aren't so crash hot these days. But oh man, no, I couldn't I couldn't do it. <laughs> it's interesting you say as well. For me, I, I also struggled with Dead Space. I I think it's a brilliant game, but um, it probably wasn't for me. And one of the things I felt was I felt like I was never able to take any kind of breath. Yeah. There was there were, there was no exhale, and one thing that I liked about something like Alien Isolation, which in some ways is trying to do a very similar thing, you're you're trapped on a creepy spaceship with something bad, but Alien Isolation gives you a lot of times when you can go right, and it, and it, and it lets you really get into that rhythm of kind of I'll be terrified and then I can relax, and I didn't find that Dead Space did that for me. No, I think yeah, quite quite right. It was a high tensile all the way through. Yeah, and it felt that feels unsustainable. Um, whereas yeah, actually, um, Resident Evil also did a good job of providing safe rooms, like your your yes safe safe rooms, even where you sit down at your typewriter and for some reason, after blowing away all these monsters and running for your life, you can then sit down and write a little story about what you just did. <laughs> But um, it felt so nice, like as soon as you get into that little room and you can hear the music playing and you know, ah, no one's going to attack me now. It's yes. Like, yeah. yeah. It's really important. I, I absolutely agree. It's a really in interesting rhythmic thing, speaking of the emotional palettes. It's also, it's it's the perfect segue. And thank you for feeding me that, sir. If we're <laughs> talking about this... The, these kind of formative emotional experiences, especially both of us in different ways are professional story makers. We've, we've invested a lot of our lives into trying to figure this stuff out. It starts from somewhere. Um, we've talked about interesting things that we've experienced recently. And the second half of that is what's, what's a narrative experience from when you were younger that would, that you really found formative. I'm really interested to hear about this. Mm. Well, uh, when we were popping down our notes for this, I mean, I initially said needful things, although now alien is springing to mind. So I'll, nice. I'll, I'll address needful things first. <laughs> Please. Um, because, I mean, it was a book I, I think I half read as a teenager, like I didn't finish it. So it was, it's been one of my bucket list challenges, I guess, is to finish needful things. <laughs> and, and I did that this year. Nice. I I and this is my Stephen King, by the way, right? Yeah, yeah. This Stephen is one of Stephen King's famous books. Yeah, sure. Yes, yeah. And I and I watched the. Was, I think it was a movie, or was it a three-part miniseries? I can't remember. It's, it was starring Ed Harris and um, done. Oh gosh, it must have been early '90s or late '80s. Right. So, so I loved the idea of the story, and I loved the idea of a um, basically a monster arriving into town that then brings out the monster in everyday people by um, selling them these things that they think they just absolutely have to have and then have to pay them back with these seemingly harmless pranks they play on each other and just how it all es escalates and, and, you know, the community tears itself apart. And I thought, 
that's such a good horror concept you know it's not it's not the monster going around killing people it's the monster giving people the tools to kill each other and it's like it's just so evil <laughs> so, nice and yeah. and so when you read the first half of it as as a teenager do you, do you remember feeling that way like like did it feel like you'd experienced something quite formative or that were you like oh shit you can actually yeah. do this with a story yeah yeah i still remember like the the first um uh, what's it? The Wilma and Hetty, I think, are the two characters involved, and it's where, sorry, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, it's where they, after a number of events, get together and basically hack each other to death on the street. And I remember reading that as a teenager and just going, "Oh my god, <laughs> that's full on. That's the scariest thing I've ever read in a book." And um, funny enough i don't remember that scene from the movie so so yeah i think that that particular scene just superimposed itself onto my into my brain and just went whoa nice when i when i think back because i i have read it but it was a long time ago the thing that sticks in my mind is and it might be the thing you're talking about one of the characters being this woman who lives in the small town who just kind of has an anger management problem at the start. She's quite passionate about stuff and flares up a little bit, but she's not dangerous. She's just kind of a slightly angry person. And then the villain um, basically puts her through a series of hoops where she thinks that someone else is after her and is playing mm. increasingly mean pranks on her. And she starts to retaliate to those pranks. And as you say, you go from sort of a, a normal person with an anger problem to people violently trying to kill each other pretty quickly mm. and you're like i remember this person from 30 pages ago they were they were fine how did they get here and and stephen king does that wonderful job of like every single step along the way actually feels logical mm. Mm. but we suddenly get to a place where you've got a town that's completely mad and, and everyone's absolutely insane it's terrifying yeah. yeah it is and it is it is it's, it's a log logical progression from yeah everyday normal anger to homicidal anger and, and a complete <laughs> loss of perspective but when you sort of think back through the psychology, you can sort of go, okay, I can see how they, with the right clues and the right nudges, pretty much talk themselves into that. <laughs> and, nice. uh, you know, and it's, it's, I guess it's, I liken it to the, the wonderful conspiracy theories that are going around at the moment, like flat earth and 5G causing COVID and all that. <laughs> but people can talk themselves into anything. And and very very quickly, which I think is the scary part, right? It's, Absolutely, it's really not a, a long evolution. Um, <laughs> so your your um, you popped an example down there. What was what was your formative narrative experience? Yeah, sure. So so I think like any kid, I, I ran into a bunch of stories that affected me a lot. One thing that I that I read when I was ten that I shouldn't have read when I was ten was the Book of the Godfather by Mario Puzo, mm. um, which is quite the read for a ten year old. But that that had a huge effect. But the one that, um, the thing I wanted to talk about was a comic from the late 90s, which is called The Invisibles by Grant Morrison. Mm. And The Invisibles, um, among comic nerds, it's, it's quite famous, mainly because it's completely batshit crazy. It was very much, it was, it was written very much during the, the rising heat of the late 90s when the millennium was approaching and mm. conspiracy theories started to boil and no one knew what y2k was going to be 
and Grant Morrison, um, it's very hard to describe the plot of The Invisibles, but it's basically all conspiracy theories are true. And there's a band of mad, um, slightly occult rebels who have seen behind the curtains of the world and are playing this very dangerous international spy game on a chessboard that's filled with the men in black, the evil presidents, um, dark archons from another dimension, the death <laughs> of Princess Diana. It's, it's absolutely insane. And at the time reading it as a, as a teenager, my, my conception of comics was, was kind of, okay, comics are either essentially Archie, Betty and Veronica, or they're superheroes. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, my, my, my palette was not wider than that. And, and I do understand the comics even then were much more than that, but the invisibles was just this kind of, oh, wow. Using just sort of ink and color and text bubbles you can go anywhere you want. You can bend time. You can wreck narrative arcs. You can do the craziest shit. And then you turn the page and you can do it all over again. Mm. And so a combination of the, the actual plot and, and, and the stuff that's in, in, in the Invisibles, it's one of those comics that actually, like, you can read it about five times and on the fifth time you start to really peel back the layers and there are other layers there. So it's a very dense, very, very technical comic in some ways, but there's also just this wonderful feeling of you really get the sense that Grant Morrison on any given morning, he woke up and he felt like some mad idea had come into his head and he translates it directly onto the page. There are, there are enough ideas inside the invisibles to fill several dozen books and comics and movies. And one of, one of the things is that the matrix is very clearly influenced by the invisibles. Ah, right. Um, and, and so it was one of those things where, and it's only happened a few times in my life. I just kind of realized, oh, wow, stories can be so much more than I thought they could. Mm. And it's happened a few times in video games, a few times with books, but that comic, especially because of the strange relationship that comics have with time and with attention and with how, how you read them. Oh, yeah. like, like literally, if you basically turn the pages of a comic back and forth, you can hop and skip right really back and forth through time. Mm. And there's a layer of invisibles where someone else is doing this to the comic of the invisibles. Oh, Which, right. Yes. And and it's buried very deep. It's it's not on the surface. On the surface, there's all these fun kind of international spy goings on and and super hip stuff that was really cool at the time. Mm. And but there there is a layer where some other creature is actually reading the invisibles and flipping back and forth through the pages and inserting itself into the plot at various points in time. And you only spot this if you hunt for it. But wow. there was one of the things I was just like, oh my God, my my, my brain is melting. So that was that's so, so meta. <laughs> it, was, it, it was absolutely, and and it was before that stuff really became as much of a thing. And so the Invisibles on on one side is just a tremendously good time. It's someone who loves things like the Avengers, the old Avengers from the sixties and old seventies spy dramas, and Quentin Tarantino, all these things. It's someone having a really good time, and it's this mind-blowingly complex and strange story thing. And and that that really shifted a lot of stuff for me. So that that was a lot of fun. Gosh, that reminds me of my first experiences reading Neil Gaiman's um, 
uh, comic series, the, oh, what's it called? Oh, Sandman? Sandman, yes. 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 Sandman, oh, my gosh, especially that second, I think it's the second volume, I think it's called The Doll's House, and it features a, a convention somewhere in this kind of like classic Midwest American convention center for, and it's a convention for serial killers. I was just like, whoa, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) And it just got darker and darker through the the whole um, series. And and that's, yeah, that was my introduction to, to, well, my broadening of my perspective of comics, like like you experienced. Um, Yeah, because previously, Likewise, I think I had a, I had a couple of comics sitting around. One was The Thing, another one was like Doctor Strange, um, and I had some Donald Duck comics, yeah, stuff like yes. that. Yeah, that, that was my experience of comics before Sandman, and that was like, whoa. Nice. And I think it, it, it ties really nicely into some of the other stuff we're talking about today, where my impression is that during the 80s and the 90s, probably following Alan Moore more than anything, but there's that whole group of British and Scottish and Irish comics writers mm-hmm. who were picked up by the American labels. And this is Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, Warren Ellis, to some extent, Alan Moore, obviously a bunch of other ones. And the huge effect that they had was they simply didn't care about any pre-existing rules or preconceptions <laughs> and they just went for it. Mm. And I think you've seen some of the same things happen recently in games. Games is certainly now the place to be trying new things and not give a crap about the consequences too much. Yeah. But it's always the thing that's interested me. And I think is something to take it, really take a look at and go, what happens if you come into an established medium from the outside and you're good at what you do, but you have no interest in repeating the past? And I think that's that's where those comics come from. And it's really interesting that we both had quite formative experiences with people who literally knew each other. Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman have known each other for 20, 30, 40 years. And they were both in very different ways. They're trying to do something. Neil Gaiman is going, I'm going to tell stories in this way. Grant Morrison is going, I don't give a shit about what you thought comics were. And they're, they're both reaching people in these quite formative experiences, which is pretty cool. Yeah, actually, that's interesting. I think I find myself in that position at the moment with, um, well, perhaps perhaps with horror, as I'm kind of embarking into horror novels, but also with lit RPG, um, where the current kind of form of lit RPG, which if, if, if listeners don't know what lit RPG is, it's, it's basically um, RPG literature or stories that are about people playing some form of role-playing game and usually it's a full immersion vr experience um so it's kind of like um it's kind of like being in the matrix but with leveling up and all the stuff that goes with with rpgs and um and it's a it's a it's been a fast-growing genre over the last few years but it's as it's grown, it's really established some solid conventions about, and the audience kind of expecting lit RPG is this, and unfortunately, it tends to be a bit of a kind of a a male RPG power fantasy, you know, getting really strong and becoming inexplicably 
attractive to to all of these in-game female characters and stuff like that and it's like i'm looking i'm coming in it so for, i came in a little bit later on in the in the lit rpg genre and i was looking at it and going well yeah I, I come from a games background where i see all these different types of games why can't we bring some of that to the genre rather than this just one kind of stereotypical um power fantasy and um and i guess yeah that's what i'm trying to do now is is you know bring those fresh approaches but it's not easy because um the audience isn't necessarily welcoming new stuff and i think um it'd be interesting to i don't know what the reception of it was of like sandman for instance um when when it was first released because it, it, like the, that thing comic that i talked about that i had actually had the sandman in it of this guy who literally turns to sand and then like goes through the ventilation to go visit his buddy the thing in, in hospital while all of these superheroes are having a massive brawl out the front of the hospital and it's like the, the shift from that sandman to neil gaiman's sandman is like a completely different character so people must have been going what what is this and and sam existing sandman fans must have just thrown their arms up in horror but it works <laughs> although being fair and to neil gaiman's advantage i'm not sure that there were millions of old sandman fans at that point i don't no. think he was he was <laughs> in the hierarchy um this is a really interesting point and it's and i think this is it's a really nice place where the crux of our conversation hits we've, we've talked a lot about where we've come from the things that influenced us but now we can talk for a while about what are we trying to do what's what's the next phase listening to you it's really interesting to hear the idea of a genre that maybe has already become a little hidebound and its existing audience knows exactly what they want one of the things that i think happened with sandman is a whole lot of people who hadn't even considered comics as something they would read suddenly found this somewhere the the old cliche which which may be completely outdated and wrong but i i'm not sure it was this idea that people's girlfriends started reading Sandman. You'd have your boyfriend who was a comics nerd and you'd be over at his place and there'd be a copy of Sandman lying around there and the cover was completely different from any normal comic. Mm. And the old cliche was that the girlfriend would pick it up and start reading and then become a huge Neil Gaiman fan. Mm. And so there's that thing of, are, are you, um, how much can you argue with who your audience is? And I'm really interested in hearing your experiences around this because there's obviously just the fact that you also have to make a living and find an audience um, mm. somehow. But yeah. how's how's that been feeling to you? Well, yeah, I've I mean I've certainly hit that that crossroad uh, with self-publishing because I've um, self-published what four three novels, a novella, two non-fiction books at this stage, and and oh. my partners under our Fiction Engine label has, has um, published a, a poetry collection as well. And um, yeah, so especially sort of that crossroads is, do you write to market or do you write what you want to write and um, hope that you can find a market? And um, as I'm, I imagine you've also experienced with, um, with um, the Tempest Bay, um, it's uh it's it's a hard road going to find your own audience <laughs> it's not the easy way but then you know i quickly found like a, my first 
lit RPG, I tried to write to market, but I still put a number of things in there, like a few kind of kind of critiques of RPGs and how they work. And then certainly in the sequel, I even put in a character that was a direct critique of a certain type of gamer. You know, he was even he was a streamer and an ARPG streamer and, and just had all of that attitude and that, that, you know, that went with that. And so I was, you know, uh, critiquing that. And um, it just didn't fly with the audience. They didn't want to hear that that type of gamer being critiqued. It wasn't what they were there for. So, um, yeah, I guess what I've now come to is that I'm, I'm not willing to give up on the genre, I've realized, because I feel like it has so much potential. But my challenge is now I need to take it to a different audience. And sure. I think... I think that must be, you know, what, um, was it Marvel? It was Marvel, wasn't it? Must have decided with, with Neil Gaiman. Was it Marvel or DC? I think it was, it was, it was DC, but they, they had created a new oh, label, Vertigo. Oh, Vertigo, yes, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah which, which is DC sub-label. But I think they were um, very much the same process, I think. Um, they, they literally thought we should make comics for adult or mature readers, and we will create a completely different brand effectively. And then we'll staff it with all of these Brits and Scots and, and just go for it. But I think there you had the thing of, there was the kind of seismic shift around, especially Alan Moore, who's pretty inescapable, where a few years ago, Alan Moore comes out of almost nowhere and writes a few things that are kind of um, earth shatteringly adult at the time. <laughs> and you can't really plan for an Alan Moore to show up. But I definitely yeah. think that that was a thing that was that was a proof point, if you like, in the in the corporate thinking of ah right, there is a market for this. Although I think it goes, it was larger than Alan Moore, just from my yeah yeah absolutely catchy understanding of of comics history. But of course, um, twenty oh, what's it called? Is it twenty two thousand AD comics? Yes, yeah. I think arguably that's probably that was a proof point of uh adult comic creation because there's nothing there's nothing kitty witty about judge Dredd. <laughs> in, <laughs> ever. it's just brutal from the from the get-go and it was it was also making some really interesting kind of political commentary about um, yeah about you know certain types of government so and it had been going for quite a while and i think had a pretty strong following so it was probably a good case in point of oh well here's this working in England, can we make it work in America? Yeah, very much perhaps. so. But I, I don't know. I think, you know, but the, there was at least there was that example around already. It's very fair. It's, it's really interesting to hear you say. So one of the things that we've found so far um, in building Tempest Bay, and, and we're, we're much further behind than you are in your projects, um, the biggest thing I've tried to do is find the things that people react to strongly. And I could not have usefully predicted what that would be in advance. So one of the key touch points we've found is people react very strongly to anything that connects to a post-apocalyptic world. And they react much more strongly to that than to some of the things that I was kind of putting out front going, hey, look at this, look at this. Hmm. And they just kind of go, yeah, that's cool. But oh, this bit I really like. was we did some pretty in-depth feedback stuff, especially on 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 the early releases. We were really going, "Hey, what did you 
really like about this? What grabbed you? What pissed you off? What didn't you care about? And just trying to dig into that and, and to sort of allow ourselves to be surprised. Um, and that level of perversity where it's not so much that I was going, oh, they'll love this. It was, okay, here's, you know, eight or nine different elements and, and a small group of people will absolutely seize on one aspect and become obsessed by it, which has happened. Mm. And then they'll walk away from other stuff. And that's kind of been the pattern. And it's quite tricky because there's things that I, I love and I have to accept that I'm possibly the only person who loves them. But there's things that I, that I really enjoy and I go, oh, right. I didn't realize that this would strike such a chord. One of them, um, to be more concrete about it, one big aspect of Tempest Bay that originally was in the background is this idea that as a, as a physical location, as a small town on the south coast of Wellington, mm. it's actually affected by emotional weather. So, oh. so you have storms coming in off the ocean, which happens all the time in the real world. But you also have emotional weather, it literally drifts in off the ocean. And every once in a while, the whole town goes a little strange, goes a little mad. Cool. And this idea of treating emotions as literally a weather system, which I think is a very familiar thing to anyone who has dealt with things like depression or anxiety. There's that mm -hmm. feeling that it's an external element. And putting that in as part of the thing, people jumped at that much more strongly than I thought. It was, it was one of half a dozen sort of driving ideas that I'd, that I'd kind of put into the mix. Mm. And that's one of the things people go, yeah, they, they feel seen by that in some way. And so it's these slightly tricky paths that I couldn't quite predict. Um, and, and, and again, we're in the very early days and, and we're much less developed and mature than the things you're doing, but I've really had to sort of go, okay, I have to accept that I, I can't control these people, these these people reading it, but but if they're latching onto anything, that's a good thing. If you sort of yes, absolutely, yeah. and especially if it's if it's anything that you can see, you could enjoy creating. Absolutely, too. yes. And I think I think that's the challenge point. I mean, um, with uh, and I'd love to come back to the emotional weather sure. thing because that's really interesting. But um, I'm just thinking with like the first book, um, uh, the first little RPG book I did, Warlock. Um, that actually sold really well. Like, nice. like, um, yeah, like we, we were actually surprised, amazed by how well it sold. And, um, you know, and, and we're talking in numbers of it's probably grossed about 20,000 New Zealand all up. Cool. Um, which, awesome. you know, for, for a, for a self-published book is pretty good. Yeah. And, um, but. I think my challenge was that the, the things that the readers were latching onto were things that I didn't personally enjoy creating. And, and that was my mistake because I'd kind of written it to market. If I hadn't been writing to market, I wouldn't even made it a fantasy because I'm, sure. you know, I've, I've done a lot of writing for fantasy games and, and I have read a lot of fantasy in the past, but it's not my go-to when for creativity, um, you know, genres like cyberpunk and horror and and gangster stuff is, is more where I like to you know like to play out stories so unfortunately yeah there wasn't a, a kind of a yeah the, the audience latched onto things that I knew I wasn't going to enjoy creating and so therefore I just couldn't you know I yeah. didn't want I didn't want another contract gig 
basically. That, that's very fair. And, and, yeah. and I think all of us who, who have done the work for hire thing, at some point, you, you want to not be for hire in some yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Very, <laughs> you want to just hire yourself to create yeah. what you want. Yeah, I agree. It's, but, it's, it's an interesting connection you say. Um, one of the things with Tempest Bay, because there, there is a, a strong Lovecraftian strain in it, but it's a very particular one. And one of the things that people that we showed the early concepts to, a lot of people were like, oh, great, Lovecraft. I really, really enjoy that. And they were looking forward to Lovecraftian monsters and people, you know, fighting Lovecraftian monsters with shotguns and that whole side of it. Mm. And, 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 and that stuff is really awesome. And there are many awesome horror stories built around that stuff. But it was an interesting point of choice because I was like, very much appreciating the reaction that's actually not what i'm doing this is not something with tentacle monsters in any kind of evidence the lovecraftian side that we're going for is much more about worldview and kind of feel and in the cosmic sense behind a lot of lovecraft stuff rather than here is your tentacle beast that you shoot in the face and it was an interesting moment, very much connecting to what you're saying, I think, where we had to go, well, we can actually probably get an audience pretty fast if we do the Lovecrafty tentacle thing, but we're really not going to do that. And it was, yeah. an, it was a very clear choice point. Yeah. And, yeah. and quite a hard one because you are walking away from an audience. Yeah. So I guess it then becomes a, a challenge of branding almost. It's like, um, you know, once again, I face this with LitRPG. It's like my work's continuing on, do I actually even call them lit RPG? Because there's so many set expectations, just like there is with Lovecraft, tentacles and shotguns, um, lit RPG has certain expectations. But uh, I think the difference comes in where lit RPG is a more general genre description, like horror, or sure. like, um, you know, contemporary Western romance, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. It's, it doesn't have to be, it's not boiled down to just a few things that, has to, that absolutely have to be there. Whereas, yeah, I think that kind of Lovecraft stereotype, unfortunately, has become like that. So it might end up being safer not to call it Lovecraft, Lovecraftian yeah. at all, because yeah. maybe that's not quite what, what it, it's, um, it's setting up expectations that aren't going to be paid off. Um, it's a really interesting point. It's it's also, by the way, um, not helped at the moment by Lovecraft Country, which is yeah. an HBO show, which is very much in the mold of um, here here are things, basically here are monsters in the woods, um, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. But it's it's a it is it is a tricky thing here because because you don't want you obviously don't want to misrepresent and get people in the door but then they realize that this isn't the door they wanted to come through mm. um with with the lit rpg i mean how much of lit rpg as a description is is essentially a mechanical description that you uh, read that you read this thing in this way <laughs> there's a lot of debate in the lit rpg community right. about that sure um for me and once again i think i'm, I'm uh, uh, I'm coming at it this way because of my game dev background. I think of it as a purely mechanical format description. It's like if your book um, has uh, a strong, uh, like a strong element of gamification in it, um, where your character is accessing RPG game mechanics to do whatever they're doing, it could be any setting, any type of character nothing like that but 
the, the sticking point is it's lit RPG, so it has to have role-playing game mechanics front and center in it. And if it doesn't, it's not it's not lit RPG. And I don't know, and um, I can be a little bit black and white about that. Um, I know um, because you know people talk about Ready Player One being technically a lit RPG novel, and it's like uh, not really, not really, because he's not just playing RPGs the whole time. Sure. And the overall world has a very sort of RPG vibe to it, but there's so much of that that is more cyberpunk and dealing with other things that the game mechanics kind of fade into the background. So, um, yeah, so I, I would definitely put it down to, to the mechanics. Whereas, uh, by the sound of it, with if you're talking about like em emotional weather systems causing people in Tempest Bay to act a little strangely, that to me sounds like psychological horror or yeah. or kind of kind of supernatural horror perhaps yeah i think for us it's it's um it's a completely useless label that doesn't get anyone in the door but um a lot of it is is essentially environmental horror you have a place that is shaped by these emotional forces that then drives behavior that can be horrific so there there are things like there, there's a cool abandoned shipwreck off the coast and way, way, way out in the dark ocean, there might be things, but, but we're probably never going to see them. And the main driving thing of most of the stories is essentially that people come here um, following some nameless call that they can sense. And then once they live in this strange little town, they go a little mad and they have these experiences that are horrific or strange, very human, very creative. So it's really just an intensified version of normal life, which which I think puts you very much in the kind of psychological horror space with, with the environmental horror. Um, but we we are working. So so for instance, um, one of the things we have in the background is um, if, if we if we ever tried to turn it into a film property, it would need to be much more clearly um situated as this is what this is and so the the plot that we have for a a, a film script set in tempest bay is mm. much more overtly like it is this type of thing yeah. but at the, but at the moment the main focus is um again environmental horror where let's let's create this space if we were if we were stephen king and we were creating dairy mm -hmm. yes. and we haven't and and we haven't created Pennywise yet. We haven't done the plot of it or any of those other things, but we're creating Derry or Castle Rock. We're building that environment. And you can see how you start to go, okay, these are the types of stories that are here. This is the type of place this is. These are the types of, this is the type of territory that people go through. Mm. And then when we build actual specific stories, we, we place those stories much more clearly in, this is this type of thing. You will enjoy it if you like these other things. But the background territory, we're trying very, very much to make it make it much more environmental. Mm. It does. It really does sound like it's the uh, what is Stephen King has a whole chapter on this in his Dance Macabre book. Yes, and um, it just calls it the bad place. Yes, and it is. It's that. It's the haunted house. It's the yeah. It's the town like like um, Castle Rock or um, Salem's Lot or Derry that just isn't a place people should live, but they do. And, and it messes them up. Um, so it sounds interesting with Tempest Bay. It's like, 
people are called there for some ineluctable and inexplicable reason, um, to use a couple of Lovecraftian words. I was going to um, think about the $10 words in it. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Ineffable even. And... Um, <laughs> Obviously, there's a payoff, though, for being, and, that, and that, that's what I love about good horror, is that there's, there's usually, yeah, there's the bad stuff where people get messed up, but there's usually a payoff. Like, people are yes. getting something out of whatever power it is, whatever's influencing them, that makes them not want to actually just run screaming away. So, that's interesting. It's really useful to say because um, um, very much in that in that vein, the 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 payoff with Tempest Bay is an intensity of feeling and creativity that people essentially become addicted to. So there are a lot of people who 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 move there who either are artists or become artists. And the town itself, while on the surface it's a kind of small, scary New Zealand town, you look behind every corner and there's there's amazing, mad, vivid art everywhere. Because it, mm. because the creativity flows along with the horror. Um, it's really interesting you say we're we're working with concept artists, and so we've been doing art briefs for people. And, and with an art brief, obviously, one thing you get down to is you you get quite in the weeds of kind of technical specs and stylistic approach. And one of the things we talked about a lot was um, don't just use black. Horror is not just dark. Horror means contrast. Mm. And I think contrast is really one of our driving things for this whole thing. It's not just a dark, miserable town where dark, miserable things happen. It's a place where the extremes of emotion and emotional weather exist. And so what does that look and feel like? What are the stories you tell if you're working with that kind of landscape? So that's been really mm. interesting. Yeah, it's like um, the art of a Hellboy. My, any of yes. Mike Manola's um, stuff or Baltimore, um, it's such a strong contrast. You know, there aren't that many colors going on, but they're used in such stark contrast that it, it does, it creates that kind of horrific otherworldly feel of, um, of like really intense emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think like, like even, even doing the most basic stuff, like if you browse ArtStation and there are, dozens and dozens and dozens of wildly talented artists who are working in essentially monochromatic palettes where they do the same thing. And one thing that we were very conscious of is we went after people who, um, even, even if they have nothing to do with horror as, as artists, who are injecting color and emotion and feeling into their work because that's very much what we want. Like, like um, it's, it, again, it's not just a dark closet it's it's a a contrast both physically and emotionally that i think can really drive it and and it's been um um talking with artists it's really interesting because that they they either get that or they don't and one of the nice paths that we're going down is very much the route of trying a, um really again trying to find the things that people either latch onto or reject strongly we're trying to evoke strong reactions to everything we're doing Mm. because it's absolutely fine if people don't want your thing they just have to really dislike it because that means someone else is going to be like oh that is me yeah. and i think that's very much the space we're moving towards and, and and it very much sounds like the space that you're working to find with your stuff as well because i know i i really enjoyed the last lit rpg thing that i wrote so, sorry that i read of, of of yours and i was probably aware that there's going to be people who will be like no this is not for me but i was like oh this is great this is awesome this this oh, this yeah absolutely stands out from the pack as it were which i think is the key was that um skulls of atlantis 
Yes. So that one. Ah, yes. Yeah. yeah. And that was, that is definitely, that was the, the turning point for me where I said to myself, I'm not going to write to market. I'm yeah. going to write a Filipino Spanish um, female pirate captain sailing nice. to Atlantis. <laughs> it's like, Absolutely. I, I, I felt like I was experiencing someone you making choices really strong awesome choices you know i'm making this choice i'm going this way you're either with me or bugger off which is which is fantastic <laughs> thank you and actually and i would just say like um it was 1862 isn't it? yeah so yeah that's the novel specifically about the shipwreck um in tempest bay and that's what i really enjoyed about it. it's like yeah you didn't pull any punches on the creepiness and the craziness in that um story and i really appreciated it so yeah you took me along on a, a really wild ride and it, did. It, it had that that feeling that permeated the whole thing of is anyone is anyone sane in this, in this story <laughs> fully sane like i didn't have any one person i could latch onto and go yep they're my they're my rock it's a, it's a very fair point and and, and one of the things drive yeah like the um in, in a lot of horror you really do want the the sane person who is your entry point into into this strange world and people might start out that way in Tempest Bay, but they very rapidly join the asylum, which I th which I think is is a, a good approach. Um, yeah. It's also a, a really good point to move us was the 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 last thing I want to talk through, which I think is us. Um, um, so if we've talked about some things that influenced us when we were younger, the the really interesting stuff that we're both sort of occupied with now. But if we're if we're throwing snowballs, if mm. we're if we're two New Zealand creators stuck down here at the ends of the earth in this wonderfully strange little country of ours, and we're both edging around one way or another where we're looking at horror particularly, but what do you want to do with New Zealand horror? What's, what's the thing? What, what castle are, are we trying to storm here? Because I think mm. we both have something in us that says, oh, we'd, we'd, we'd like to do something different. Absolutely. Um, my impression of New Zealand horror has been that we do schlock horror really well and sort of like a really dark comedy really well sure and i'm thinking of things like um oh black sheep and um the locals and oh gosh so many sort of films that that have never been truly scary they uh, you know bad taste yeah, uh, you know, uh, Peter Jackson has a lot to answer for <laughs> in, in this genre. So I think we do that really well. What, but to me, like having, especially, you know, I've, I've house sat, my, uh, Rachel and I have house sat all over New Zealand. We've seen a lot of different places and we've experienced some really interesting vibes from those places. Um, some, some wonderful, some really not. And um, it is to me like, New Zealand has a lot that is just downright scary. It has <laughs> dark corners, uh, some some of the cities, some of the towns, some out in the wilderness. And um, I'd love to see us explore that that terrifying landscape more. So that's not the postcard um, come to Middle Earth, which frankly, actually, Middle Earth is a really scary place in itself, <laughs> if you look at it. But um, it's like, we have this these wonderful stark contrasts of this gorgeous landscape and these really not so gorgeous towns 
<laughs> and and like how do we how do we play with that? You know, what what what's uh, that? That's my um, you know that's my two cents. What's what are your feelings about New Zealand horror? And what what can we do with it? No, it's awesome. It's it's really interesting hear, hearing you talk about those things. And and again, I, I've had this experience before, I think, when we've talked where we've obviously lived very different lives and careers, but we've both encountered some of the same touchstones and felt exactly the same way about, about some of the things. Um, I I instinctively also have a sense, and an, an outsider's sense of um, wanting to challenge any form of literary establishment or existing um, structures and hierarchies. And, and part of this is just a function of who I am. I'm, I am always the strange kid outside the window throwing the rocks in, but um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, like you were saying around Peter Jackson's movie, bad taste, which, which was his, his first um, film that he ever made. And, and that eventually led to all of, all of the other successes. There was a, a long period in New Zealand where most local New Zealand film productions rely quite heavily on public subsidy. Mm -hmm. And for a very long time, there was an incredibly narrow set of things that would get funded. And they were all of the things that followed on from previous successes. So that's why there's a long history of essentially New Zealand horror comedy part of it is that horror comedies are cheap to make but part of it is that once we had basically two or three good ones it was felt that to come up in the new zealand film world you probably had to start with a horror comedy and the closer it was to that sensibility you've been talking about the better and there's nothing wrong with that it's it's a natural consequence of of any small country trying to allocate its resources to stuff but i always feel like across new zealand literature and film and entertainment We've dug very deep holes in very specific places, and there's this giant field beyond that of really strange stuff that we haven't touched at all. Mm. And I and I'd love to go out there and 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 basically dig new holes. And mm. there's there are a lot of um, local structures, local hierarchies, social networks, even if you like, within New Zealand that will kind of resist that a little, yeah. Um, yeah. which is natural in any environment. But I'm I'm still the kid who wants to throw rocks. So, yeah, <laughs> look out, glass houses in the neighbourhood <laughs> coming for you. Exactly. And and so I um so with with horror in particular, I mean we have wonderful contemporary horror writers, people like Lee Murray, um who who are doing incredible work. And there is some version of what I guess you would call the New Zealand literary establishment that tends to um, write and support a very particular range of things, which is different again. There's a strong New Zealand science fiction scene, um, which, which goes in. And, but my, my strongest thing is I, I just instinctively want to strike out in a different direction from all of it and go, as you say, from first principles, what's the things that I find horrific and strange about this landscape? And how do I present that to the world in a way that some people will connect with? That to me is the core challenge. Yes. And uh, I totally agree with that sentiment. And, um, on so many levels and i think um for me my my hope or, or a source of hope is actually the kind of swedish horror and scandi noir sort of movement and i'm thinking like um oh, what's his name lindquist i think is his name he wrote let the right one in yeah um which was then made into a, a film 
And then I recently read another of his, which I think is I Am Behind You. And it was just so wonderfully Swedish. Like, I was looking for something fresh, like a new, something that's going to scare me in a different way. And this yeah. was about, like, a bunch of Swedes who go on their, you know, annual caravan holiday to this one caravan park, which honestly sounds so Kiwi. <laughs> and I think that was the other, I, I could relate to what they were doing because it's also, we do a lot of it here. And then just these bunch of caravan, caravans get, just get shifted into this horrific landscape that they then have to try to work out what the hell's going on. And, and you know, their, their personalities start to break down and all sorts of things come out. And it's just really good. And But just seeing, yeah, like I said, how Swedish it was gave me hope that, yeah, here in New Zealand, we can find our voice. We can be, like, people will go read something or watch something and go, ah, that's a, that's a New Zealand horror. I, I know what that's like. Yeah. That's really interesting you say, and, and and obviously over over the past hundred and something years, um, other people in other art forms and genres have found their own answers to that. They have found their own things of this is a New Zealand voice, and 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 that's that's a wonderful thing. My argument, which I which I think I I hear you agree with, is I I simply don't want to be bound by the previous solutions that people have found to Absolutely. what is a New Zealand expression. I, yeah. I I don't want to be continually compared to people from the 1920s because all of that stuff is great I, I i have no problem with it at all but i'm very interested in finding our own new forward-looking solutions to this core question exactly yeah no longer should we all be compared to Catherine mansfield why no yes there, no more. there are um um again for overseas listeners a very small number of new zealand largely short story writers um frank sargison catherine mansfield that for a very long time were just the entire superstructure of new zealand literature mm, and yeah. nothing there's no problem at all with what they're writing but every once in a while again um can we go dig another hole somewhere it's it's yeah. it seems so strange to to be com so completely captured by a very small body of work by a very small number of people Yes, and, and since we're talking about horror, when, when CJ says whole, we're talking about grave. We're going to go dig some graves. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I mean, I mean, tying back almost all the things we talked about, those those British comics writers of, of the 80s and 90s, um, a lot of new game developers who've come into, into the industry over the past sort of 10 years, there's always a sense somewhere, there's, there's a strong fuck you sense in, in what they're doing and, and and they are refusing one way or another to accept what's been handed down as this is the form this is what comics are this is what games are this is what new zealand horror is you have to have a sense of i i, I want to go break shit somehow absolutely and i think um to a challenge that we have as new zealanders is that um over the last few decades we've also been absolutely saturated with american content sure. and so we've we've absorbed say for instance american horror and, you know, it, it's telling that, that one of my strongest references is Stephen King. You know, for instance, it wasn't a New Zealand horror writer, it was Stephen King. And so I think we also need to kind of, you know, look at that, look at the structures, look, look at what works and what doesn't in, from, in terms of storytelling, but then go, yeah, but how can I do that the Kiwi way? Like, what, yes. yeah, what, what Kiwi story can I... Um, express using potentially tried and true, true techniques or as a, a reaction totally something totally different 
you know, different ways of storytelling altogether. That's really interesting. I, I, I agree. And and I do think, I mean, um, my, my understanding of Stephen King in the 70s, he found stories that only he could write. Mm. And that's always the question. You go, okay, what about me here in my environment, where I am, who I am? What can I write that no one else can? It's a... Um, it's a very naughty question that comes up when you're doing things like pitching films. The nastiest question in the room is always, why are you the person to make this film? And we kind of have to find our own answers to that. What, what, what specifically about being us here now is the thing that we can do that someone sitting in America can't do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there are only 5 million of us. That's yeah. 5 million out of almost 8 billion on the planet. So the odds of being born in New Zealand are just so minute. You've got a bit of chance of winning the lottery. So <laughs> we should be grasping that and going, yeah, what? we've got this. We've got this really unique situation. Um, what do we have to say about it? So, yeah, yeah I totally agree. Well, well, at the same time, I think... Um being dicks enough to reject the a lot of the hand-me-downs because as with any culture there's a whole lot of cruft where people um in their offhand moments they think oh well these things are kiwi culture whatever that means that that, that that's the space you work in and i think you have to constantly oh. really kind of reinvent and again i mean um because we're both fixated on Stephen king to some extent in a good way i'm pretty sure in the 1970s that new york publishing houses if they had heard about this strange horror books being written in northern maine they would have gone what on earth why why aren't you setting your stories somewhere better and we'll see if we go well no well i'm i'm here this is my place i'm going to make it my place i'm not going to accept the clothes that you're trying to put on me mm -hmm. and i think that's always a challenge for for any culture but especially new zealand which does have a quite ingrained sense of these are the reflexive things that we imagine are kiwi culture yes and you can look at that with fresh eyes and go, oh, but there's something quite horrific here that's not in the direction you were looking at. And that's really the challenge. Yeah, yeah, it is a real challenge. And there is a, there's certainly a temptation to, once again, like if you're trying to capture an audience, there's a certain temptation to go set your story where in a place where you think the audience is going to relate to it. Um, and, you know, like rather than setting your, your supernatural horror in Auckland, you set it in San Francisco. You know, yeah. because they immediately go, ah, there's a much bigger audience for that. But it's like, eh, no, it's like, but then, then you're tr having to transport your imagination to another place, putting another challenge in the way, unless you really know San Francisco well. And yeah, it just becomes all a little strained. Whereas, yeah, I think I've sort of, I'm coming back to that too, of like, what can I write that pulls in? everything that I've experienced of just being a Kiwi and especially a small town Kiwi. And, um, so yeah, I'm going to be giving that a shot. Nice. Excellent. So that's fantastic. On one last note on that, I, I, I had an excellent catch up the other day with a Kiwi art director who's worked in video games for must be 20 years now. Mm. And, 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 and he was really, really helpful and, and really articulate. And he was talking about the exact same problem. Um, he'd worked for Kiwi game studios for a long time. And the number one thing that he'd had to get good at was helping Kiwis pretend to basically be in places like New York. Yes. Yeah. And he'd yeah. said, well, so what we used to do is we used to try and sneak little little kind of Kiwi things into the art, into the background of the, of the concept art. 
but he said at some point you get sick of getting good at pretending to be other places yeah. pretending to be las vegas and san francisco and all these other things and and there's nothing wrong with those places at all and the money for the gigs in those cases was you're going to make a game set in this place hmm. but at some point he's like well now i just want to do this instead which which sounds like we're all on the same page in some way <laughs> yeah yeah i guess it's just maybe we're old enough and but ugly enough to finally realize that, that being us is fucking okay. <laughs> Something that most five-year-olds know perfectly well. It's only taken us both about 40 years to get there, which is, which is yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so mate, yeah, this has been a fantastic chat. Thank you so much for taking the time to catch up with us. I, I've, I've really enjoyed, I, I always enjoy our, our, our points of similarity and our points of difference. It's, it's, oh, it's quite wow. a strange continuum we, we exist on. Um, yeah. Where can people follow you and find more of your stuff? And what do you want to point people to? Um, cool. Well, my website is www.edmcrae.com. So it's E-D-M-C-R-A-E. And that's pretty much got all my stuff on it from my lit RPG books and nonfiction books about narrative design through to uh, all my work with video games. And I've done a little bit of work with comics and that as well. So that's the best place to go to. Um, or... Uh, if you just um, Google Edwin McRae, I'll come up, or Edwin McRae Narrative Design, I'll come up. Excellent. Um, and and as always, the home page for all stuff Project Tempest is project-tempest.net. That's project-tempest.net. And that's us for this week. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay. Tempest Bay.